Hey everybody, welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. We have a lot of politics, a lot of law, and maybe some things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today for our roundup, I am joined by the show's co-host and producer, Mr. Joe Armstrong. Joe, what are we talking about today? Hello, Jessica. Happy summer to you. Happy post-4th of July. We've got a trio of lawsuits on the docket today, and see what I did there for a legal podcast. We will give you an update on Congressman Eric Swalwell's March 5th lawsuit against the former president, his legal counsel Rudy Giuliani, and Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks for their roles in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. We'll also discuss the sentencing of Stormy Daniels' former lawyer Michael Avenatti to 30 months in an extortion scheme involving Nike. We'll have a bit of news about a local Southern California politico jumping to the national stage. But first up, Jessica, is Donald Trump's new lawsuit against social media behemoths Facebook Twitter, and YouTube. So let's get to it. Former President Donald Trump announced this week that he is suing Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, owned by Google, the last of which, for the suspensions of his accounts in the aftermath of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol back on January 6th. The first part of this backstory should be familiar to you unless you've been living under a rock for the last six-plus months, and that is that a mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building in Washington after weeks of Trump refusing to accept the results of the 2020 election that Joe Biden won. Now, Biden remains the president. Shortly after the insurrection, several social media platforms banned the then-president indefinitely. In response to this, Facebook created an oversight board to assess the bans and to clarify the platform's general policies on bans such as the one for Trump. In May, that advisory board upheld that ban, but also criticized Facebook for the murkiness of their rules on the indefinite bans for users for things like inciting violence. Trump remains banned for two years, and that dates back to the date of the original ban, which was January 7th of this year, or until, quote, the risk to public safety has receded. Next up, Florida passed a new law preventing social media platforms from banning political candidates, but it was blocked by a federal judge mere hours before it would have taken effect on July 1st, just a few days ago. And that brings us to this week, when Trump announced his class action lawsuits in, you guessed it, his current state of residence, which is Florida. Trump is claiming that his First Amendment rights were violated when the social media platform suspended his accounts, but a simple read of that First Amendment undermines the former president's does it not, Jessica? I'm not sure it takes a legal scholar to suss out the chances of these legal complaints, but since you happen to be a legal scholar, can you please tell us the reality here, Jessica? Uh, Yes, the reality is exactly what you said, which is this is so misunderstood, but the First Amendment applies to state action, by which I mean actions taken by the government, the local government, the state government, the federal government, or their representatives or agents. And so when a private company says, you know what, our terms of use indicate that you're not allowed to say this, then that private company is not subject to the First Amendment. This drives me, Joe, it just drives me crazy. And I hear this all the time. I have a First Amendment right to say X, Y, and Z. You do if it's the government who's either forcing you to not say something or to say something. But when it comes to private actors, by which I don't mean Hollywood actors, I mean private individuals, they're not subject to the First Amendment unless they're transformed into state actors. And that's what President Trump 
argues in his brief here. In the complaint, what he says is, well, when it comes to these particular private corporations, they've essentially become state actors for a couple of reasons. One is Democratic legislators have coerced them into acting certain ways, have essentially threatened them, forced them to toss me off of their platforms. Another is he said, well, they have the benefit of this federal law. And under the federal law, platforms like Facebook and Twitter, they're not liable for what users on their platform say, and they have freedom when it comes to their content moderation. And what he says is basically, well, because Democratic lawmakers really put a lot of pressure on them, and because they have the benefit of protection under this federal law, they're state actors. I mean, this is nonsense. I'm sorry. Now I'm just yelling at you, Joe. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling with you. And so this First Amendment argument is just a legal loser. No offense taken at all, Jessica, but I think we all know that Trump's lawsuits really aren't about what they seem. Now, are they, Jessica? Well, no. I mean, this is about politics. And we've seen this before from the former president. In my view, this is a political argument that's wrapped up in legal papers. So it looks official and it looks like we should respect it. But in fact, we shouldn't. This is a political argument because President Trump has lost his megaphone. The rallies are not a substitute for his ability to be on these social media platforms and reach people. And what's he doing, Joe, when he's reaching people? He's also fundraising. So Facebook was big money for the president in the sense that it's a really easy platform for political fundraising. So this is, I think, It's about the politics of trying to say to his supporters, look, all of these social media corporations, they're biased against conservatives, and it's trying to make up for the idea that they can't just click donate anymore. And, uh, you know, whether or not this is a successful political argument, that's a bigger question here than whether or not it's a successful legal argument. In that case, I think I know the answer, which is no, I fully suspect that this case will be tossed out. Money, 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 Jessica, but going nowhere. Thank you for that. Our next topic for today involves California Congressman Eric Swalwell, who might sound familiar to Passing Judgment listeners because he joined Jessica for an interview on episode 28 from late last year. Now, fast forwarding back in March, after that appearance on Passing Judgment, Swalwell announced a civil lawsuit against Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks for their roles in inciting the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. But there has been one hitch. Swalwell couldn't find Brooks in order to serve the papers. Swalwell's team went so far as to hire a private investigator to track down his congressional colleague with very little luck. A district judge granted Swalwell a 60-day extension, but also rejected his request to have U.S. Marshals serve Brooks. Now, after months of dodging process servers, Brooks was finally served with papers about the lawsuit by a private investigator this week. Now, more accurately, it was Brooks' wife who was served after a private investigator staked out their house until someone came home. According to a sworn affidavit filed on Tuesday, the private investigator knocked on the Brooks' family door. When no one answered, he waited nearby until someone came home. That someone turned out to be Brooks' wife. The PI then entered the garage and attempted to give the papers to Brooks' wife. 
one of the rules of serving papers is that they can only be given to an adult at the defendant's residence. Brooks has accused Swalwell's representative of breaking the law to serve his papers, and he tweeted the following on June 6th. Now, this is a very Trumpy tweet, replete with unnecessary capitalization and a profusion of exclamation points. And it goes like this. Well, Swalwell finally did his job, served complaint on my wife. Horrible. Swalwell's team committed a crime by unlawfully sneaking into my house and accosting my wife, exclamation point. Alabama Code 13A-7-2, first-degree criminal trespass, year in jail, $6,000 fine, more to come, exclamation point. But according to CNN, one of Swalwell's attorneys, Philip Andonian, said, quote, No one entered or even attempted to enter the Brooks house. That allegation is completely untrue. A process server lawfully served the papers on Mo Brooks' wife as the federal rules allow. This was after her initial efforts to avoid service. Mo Brooks has no one but himself to blame for the fact that it came to this. We asked him to waive service. We offered to meet him at a place of his choosing. Instead of working things out like a civilized person, he engaged in a juvenile game of Twitter trolling over the past few days and continued to evade service. He demanded that we serve him. We did just that. The important thing is that the complaint has been served and Mo Brooks can now be held accountable for his role in inciting the deadly insurrection at the Capitol. Now, this is more than just a he said, he said tragic comedy of what is usually a very simple serving process. What is this suit about? What's going on with the serving? And what is Brooks' defense? Can I just say, I mean, this seems like such a, what do we call it? A tragic comedy, dramedy. Um, I mean, the idea that there is a private investigator staking out a member of Congress because he won't just say, absolutely, let's just assume you serve me like President Trump, former President Trump, and like Rudy Giuliani did because we have to go through these theatrics is it's just I mean, it adds to the sense that this is a sideshow in an otherwise serious lawsuit. So this lawsuit is actually based on a violation of a Reconstruction era federal law, the Ku Klux Klan Act. And what Swalwell is saying here is that Mo Brooks entered into a conspiracy to fail to do his official duties, which as a member of Congress is to certify the results, and that he not only failed to stop the mob, he actually helped to incite the insurrection. So this is a serious lawsuit. Obviously, it's a civil suit. What Representative Swalwell is asking for here is civil damages. And, you know, again, it's a serious suit. And then we have this absurdity when it comes to the process, uh, when it comes to trying to actually serve Representative Brooks. So what comes next? Well, Eric Swalwell had actually asked that a default judgment be entered against Representative Brooks. He said, look, we served him. He didn't respond. Uh, we want to enter a default judgment. The judge in this case has actually given more time. And I think we're going to get to the substance here, which is that Representative Brooks has said, I can't be liable because I was acting in my official capacity as a federal official. Now, there is an old case from 1988 that says, if you're a federal official, you get immunity if you are acting in your official capacity. Now, that makes actually a lot of sense in that we want people to be able to become um, federal staffers, federal elected officials, without fearing that they will potentially be bankrupt based on 
every move that they make because they're going to be sued. And what if these lawsuits are successful and they were just carrying out their official duties? The problem in this case that I have is that I think that this idea that what in my view is ginning up a angry mob to storm the Capitol and then failing to complete your duties of certifying the results is viewed as official duties is really a stretch. And Joe, we actually talked about this when we discussed President Trump's defense against the defamation suit that E. Jean Carroll had brought against him, where very briefly, um, what E. Jean Carroll is alleging here is that by saying he did not, that former President Trump did not sexually assault her, and by disparaging her character, that he engaged in defamation. And he said, well, my response was said while I was president, and I'm protected because I was just engaging in official acts. It's the same argument. And President Trump, in fact, in response to the Swalwell suit, makes the same argument that Mo Brooks makes, which is we have immunity. We were federal officials at the time acting within the you know course and scope of our duties as federal officials. I think that if courts agree with that, then we need to narrow the definition of what we mean by official acts, and we need to narrow that immunity. So, Joe, that's a long way of saying I can't believe the story leading up to the service of process. Um, that And that is briefly what Eric Swalwell is alleging and what the defense is here in this case. All right. So we'll keep an eye on that down the road, Jessica. Let's move on to our next topic for today's show. The name Michael Avenatti rang out during the heart of the Trump years. Avenatti achieved the dubious position of celebrity lawyer with his vocal admonitions of the then president. Avenatti was sentenced to 30 months in prison this week for an extortion plot against Nike. So he's definitely back in the news. Now, Avenatti was Stormy Daniels' lawyer, who was the woman who allegedly had an affair with then-candidate Donald Trump, after which Trump allegedly paid hush money to keep the affair secret during the 2016 election. According to the details of this trial, Avenatti attempted to shake down the athletic apparel and shoe company Nike to the tune of tens of millions of dollars to be paid to himself, another attorney, and a youth basketball coach by threatening to hold a news conference and accusing Nike of illegally paying athletes. It seems to me that Avenatti's story is a lesson in how power can indeed corrupt Jessica. So what is next for Avenatti? Well, what's next is that this isn't the end of his legal troubles. And it's interesting you said this is a story about how power can corrupt. I was thinking of that old myth about Icarus, who just flies too close to the sun and is essentially gets burned. And when I was reading a while ago about, you know, who is Michael Avenatti, what happened to him, it did remind me of that in the sense that it seemed like he gained a certain amount of success and then he just... Uh, became a little too big for his britches, so to speak. And he just flew a little too close to the sun to the tune of actually violating criminal law. So there are actually two more cases that he is uh, facing now. One is in New York, and those allegations deal with the idea that he actually defrauded Stormy Daniels, of course, his former client, out of a book advance, which I think was about $300,000. And there's another case that is pending here in California, and that also alleges 
um, that Michael Avenatti defrauded other clients of his law firm. I should do a quick disclosure here that that California case is before a judge who I know very well, but I'm in no way connected with the suit or um, the arguments or the allegations other than just to be somebody who's watching and saying, wow, this is really a how to, uh, not what not to do uh, when we talk to law students, uh, that you, if there's the first, second, third thing you don't do, it's uh, take your client's money if the allegations here are true. And don't extort people, Jessica. That's the moral of the story, yes. I guess. But now, before we get on out of here today, we have some news about a Los Angeles mayor's new gig. Now, Jessica, can you tell us who this is and what this promotion might be? Well, uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, it looks like it is official during the time from when we started recording this episode until the end of the episode, it looks like it is now official that President Biden will name him to be the ambassador to India, only because the next thing I'm going to do after we record is hop on some Zooms to talk about this. If you'll all indulge me a moment, um, you may have heard about our mayor, obviously the mayor of one of the biggest cities in the country is a local official, but also has a national stage. There are about 4 million people, I think 3.96, who live in the city of Los Angeles, and therefore he does have a national platform. There was a lot of discussion about whether or not Mayor Garcetti would actually run to be president in 2020, and he ultimately decided not to, I think for a couple of reasons, one, it's very difficult to run for president after being the mayor. Um, and if we look back in history, we'd be hard pressed to find a mayor who, in fact, has gone on to higher office either in the state or in the federal government. And two, we obviously have a horrible homelessness problem in Los Angeles. And you can just imagine the ads now, not only is that a humanitarian crisis, but you can imagine politically that's a crisis as well. And I don't mean to underplay any of the true humanitarian concerns. I am merely pointing out that politically, it's very difficult to run for anything when the last line on your resume is mayor of Los Angeles. And it's very, very difficult when you're facing a seemingly intractable humanitarian crisis, uh, because of our homelessness problem. Now, Mayor Garcetti, I think being a young and ambitious person, recognized this. He recognized that he has to basically leave home in order to come back home and run for higher office. And so I think that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, he will be named and I suspect will be confirmed as the next ambassador to India. And, you know, the next question people tend to ask me is, well, does he have any experience um, in foreign policy or in India? And I think the answer is no, uh, but he will in a few months from now, or he will a few months after he is confirmed. For Los Angeles, the last thing we need to think about is who will the next mayor be? I suspect because there's not that much longer in the term that the city council will name an interim mayor, uh, that we won't hold a special election. And the question will be who that person is, because as Joe, as you and I know, we're talking to each other from Los Angeles. The race to fill the next full term is already afoot. And so it'll be really interesting to see who the next mayor is and how that affects the race to be the next mayor 
in the next full term, as I said. So that is our news out of Los Angeles, which I suspect will also be national news. And Joe, I think that's also our episode. It certainly is, Jessica. Thank you so much for all of your insight into these things. And thank you ever so much to our listeners for listening. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and elsewhere at Indepday, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y. You can find the podcast on Twitter, and I hope that you do, at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will talk at you very soon. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.